So, the past four weeks, we have encountered Jesus on the road. We've encountered Jesus behind locked doors. We've encountered Jesus on the beach. And now we're back on the road again for one of the most famous encounters with the resurrected Jesus. We actually get two for the price of one in our story this morning. We have the conversion of Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, but that only happens with the help of another Jesus follower named Ananias, who had his own Jesus encounter. So a skeptical friend once asked pastor and author Will Willimon, why do you need a supernaturally resurrected body of Jesus to make your faith work? And here's what he responded. I don't need a resurrected Jesus. Come to think of it, I'm not sure I want a resurrected Jesus. In fact, in one sense, a resurrected Jesus is a real nuisance for me, personally. I've got a good life. I've figured out how to work the world on the whole to the advantage for me, my friends, and family. My health is good, and everybody close to me is doing fine. I have the illusion that I'm in control, that I'm making a so significant contribution to help Jesus on my own. No, I don't need a bodily resurrected Jesus. In fact, once I truly embrace the resurrection of Jesus, my life would become much more difficult. Any of you ever done a rationalization like that? We're doing just fine as we are, thank you very much. I can only imagine that Paul thought this more than one time throughout his life and ministry. Maybe when the ship wrecked and he had to swim to shore, or when he was in prison numerous times, or when he had to escape out the back window to save his life, or when he was in front of the king arguing for his freedom. But today, our story is Saul, Paul's powerful encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Here, Luke's version of this uh, from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Meanwhile, Saul was still spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus. If he found persons who belonged to the way, whether men or women, these letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. During the journey, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? Saul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are harassing, came the reply. Now get up and enter the city. You will be told what you must do. Those traveling with him stood there speechless. They heard the voice, but saw no one. After they picked Saul up from the ground, he opened his eyes, but he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and neither ate nor drank anything. In Damascus, there was a certain disciple named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision. Ananias! He answered, Yes, Lord. The Lord instructed him, go to Judas's house on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. 
In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias enter and put his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias countered, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man. People say he has done horrible things to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's here with authority from the chief priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. The Lord replied, Go. This man is the agent I have chosen to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias went to the house. He placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me, Jesus, who appeared to you on the way as you were coming here. He sent me so that you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly, flakes fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After eating, he regained his strength. He stayed with the disciples in Damascus for several days. Right away, he began to preach about Jesus in the synagogues. He is God's son, he declared. This is the word of God for all God's people. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Through the written word and the spoken word, may we know your living word, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So today we have the most sensational and, I would argue, impactful of all of the Jesus encounters. Admittedly, most people don't experience Jesus in the way that Saul and Ananias did. And yet, there is a powerful testimony that we have much to learn from in this story. So this morning, I want to explore these encounters and use it as an opportunity to challenge us to explore the possibility that Jesus is calling us to something. Something significant something godly. So um, let's first talk about the difference of encounter as call because in our previous stories over the last several weeks these encounters have been more about proving Jesus's resurrection and inspiring faith but this one is different and even last week Jesus was commissioning Peter to go and feed the, the sheep, but he was giving him a directive for like the rest of his ministry. This story is different. It's a calling that's placed on both Paul, Saul, Paul, and Ananias. And it is a specific ask for something to happen. Well, every pastor has a call story every pastor and we have to tell our call story as part of even our our um, pathway to ordination over and over and over again but pastors are not the only ones that are called by God the encounters this week are examples of God calling so what is a call exactly it's an invitation to be used by God so it's more than just an invitation into faith, into belief. It is to take that belief and that faith and then in response to do something specific. Both Saul and Ananias are called by God. Saul, 
on his way to do mean and destructive work is stopped right there in his tracks and derailed. Ananias, minding his own business, is sent right into the face of his life-threatening enemy. The call of Jesus is like that, though. Oftentimes, it turns us completely around. We think we're headed in one direction, but by the time God is done with us, we're headed in another. Sometimes our best laid plans mean nothing. And the hardest thing, the hardest thing of all, as exciting as it is when Jesus calls us, the hardest thing of all to do is when Jesus is calling us then to trust and be obedient to go in Jesus' direction, not our own Both Saul and Ananias proved to be faithful and courageous to answer their call. So let's look at Saul, who became Paul. Jesus appears to Paul not to scare him, but to give him a plan. And I think that's important to recognize. He recruits Saul to his team. The exact same characteristics, by the way, that made Saul so threatening to the Jewish followers of the way is exactly what God used to spread the gospel across the Middle East and beyond. But the drama of that moment, it was not to scare Saul into faith. It was to get his attention so he would hear the plan, receive the plan. Three days he's blind and helpless. This is not in Paul's or Saul's nature, right? This is a strong person. He's determined. He is in control. He is powerful. But it kind of echoes Jesus' three days in the tomb. And this, this period humbled Paul. It was important for him to be in this helpless condition, realizing that he was, in fact, dependent on Jesus for this plan. We often think of Paul's conversion as kind of an immediate thing that happened on the road to Damascus, but it wasn't. It took a little time for things to play out in order for Paul to catch up to where Jesus was and to get on board with Jesus' plan. And it was going to take something to move from Saul, the keeper of the cloaks, during Stephen's stoning, to Paul, the planter of Jesus-loving churches. But in fact, Paul went from enemy number one to apostle for Christ. And he becomes one of the most powerful instruments for the gospel. Proof again that God can and does choose anyone for God's purposes. All right, so what does it mean then for us to be called? Jesus Christ asks you to follow him and be used by him. This can be intensely personal, which then can cause it to be confusing to those close to you. But when that invitation to something specific begins to play itself out, sometimes we're the only one that gets it. Paul, you see, both heard and saw Jesus, so he knew who was speaking to him. But his fellow travelers only heard what happened. They couldn't see Jesus, so they walked away from that quite confused. I remember in my own journey, after I came home from college, I was clear that I was going to go to seminary, but not directly from undergrad into graduate school. 
My mom didn't believe me. I ended up coming back home and was able to work and save money for seminary, but I ended up volunteering and uh, being placed in charge of our middle high youth, and I began to lead that youth ministry. And it wasn't until after months of watching me in that volunteer job and seeing how much I loved it and how it played out that my mom began to realize, oh, she's actually serious about this thing. And she began to see, because you see, me becoming a minister was not my mom's mental image of what it was I was going to or supposed to do. But because our call story often is so personal, it can take those around us by surprise until they see with their own eyes what God is doing in our lives. Now, sometimes, if we are slow to respond or if we are resisting, Others around us do see what is happening in our lives before we do. So it can go both ways depending on how we are responding to God's call. The other thing about a call is it is life-changing. Anytime we have an encounter with Jesus, it will be life-changing. But when that call comes to something specific, truly, truly, our life is not the same. That experience causes us to never be the same. And once we've been obedient to Jesus and been in Jesus' care, we become transformed disciples who live for the transformation of hearts, the church, our community, and the world. Does that sound familiar? Because that's our vision statement. That's what we are longing to live into, that kind of transformation. The other thing that happens when we are called is we turn ourselves over to be used as God's instrument. That's the question, isn't it? Are we willing, are we willing to turn ourselves over to be God's instrument? To allow God to tune us and play us to make God's music? Are we willing to be one of God's instruments in God's orchestra? Paul is not the only one with a famous call story. Our own founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, had what we call his Aldersgate experience. This is what he wrote in his journal about it. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while the leader was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. You understand that he had been years in ministry, years in ministry. The Methodist movement was well underway when this event finally happened. But here's the difference. He finally felt that assurance that Christ loved him and forgave him for all the stuff that he had messed up. And so the question for us as we think about this is, have you felt the assurance of God in your life? Do you know what it means to trust in God alone? To have that sense of, 
um, full relationship with Jesus in such a way that no matter what, no matter what, God's love for you is real, it is trustworthy, and it is ever-present. And that assurance allows us to then trust God for whatever it is that he calls us to do. And we wonder, well, what happens to us when we are called? How will we be different? Are we converted? What happens to all of this stuff that we now have assurance is going to be okay, and yet it's still here? Author Kathleen Norris, I think, speaks to this beautifully. She writes, we do not suddenly change in essence, magically becoming new people with all our old faults left behind. What happens is more subtle and to my mind, more revealing of God's great mercy. In the process of conversion, the detestable parts of ourselves do not vanish so much as become transformed. We can't run from who we are with our short tempers or vanity or sharp tongues, our talents for self-aggrandizement, self-delusion or despair, but we can convert in its root meaning of turnaround so that we are forced to face ourselves as we really are. We can pray that God will take our faults and use them for good. Mm. We are changed when God encounters and calls us and we respond. We are changed. But I wonder, do you have problematic characteristics in your life? that could be transformed for God's great use? Is Paul evermore an example for us of that exact thing, of being able to use those characteristics that were persecuting the early church and turn them into one of the most um, impactful uh, messengers for the good news? How can God's grace use our gifts for good? Because you see, it is God's grace that transforms us into God's instrument. If we sit there and look at ourselves and say, oh my gosh, what are you thinking, God? That's our perspective. That's looking at us through our eyes. We have to, for a minute, just try and look at ourselves through God's eyes. C.S. Lewis, I think, helps us also move from just recognizing, move it into action. And he says, fine feeling, new insights, great interest in religion mean nothing unless they make our actual behavior better. So the goal and the hope is that in this calling and our responding, in this encountering with Jesus, that it always works to make us into the best form and being of ourselves that we can be. But there is this movement, you know, Wesley, this perfection, this sanctifying grace that's moving us ever more like Jesus. But sometimes we are the biggest stumbling block. And so I wonder, what behaviors in your life need to change? Where are you falling short from what God asks of you? You've heard the encounter. Like Ananias, you're like, do I have you straight here, God? You want me to go and lay hands on the one who has authority to arrest me and take me back to Jerusalem? That's who you want me to go and pray over and give this message to? 
He could have said, no way. I'm not taking my, hand, my life in my own hands. But he didn't. So maybe you're at that point where you've heard the calling. It's there. But you're struggling to follow through because it scares you. Or you're not sure you can do it. Or it's just hard. But let me remind you, you are an instrument of God. God calls all of us to something at some time. Because God needs all of us in God's greater plan. And so are you playing beautiful music? Calling others to God? Or are you still in the case, unplayed, and getting dusty? Claude Alexander, a pastor in um, a church in Charlotte, urges Christians from all walks to step up to bold spiritual leadership. And I love what he says. I, if you've ever done the disc inventory, I'm a D. I am biased to action. I am biased to results. And I, I get excited when I hear this. Um, but here's what he says um, for us to think about. There are questions that beg to be answered. There are dilemmas to be overcome. There are gaps to be filled, and the challenge is for you to fill them. That is the essence of a high call of spiritual leadership. There is no purpose for your being. Well, there is a purpose for your being here. You are meant to answer something, solve something, provide something, lead something, discover something, compose something, write something, say something, translate something, interpret something, sing something, create something, teach something, preach something, bear something, overcome something, and in doing so, you improve the lives of others under the power of God and for the glory of God. We are all instruments ready to do something, to play something. And just like Paul and Ananias, often our paths cross with others who are just as bewildered as we are. But God, the master composer, and Jesus, the master director, bring us all together in a beautiful symphony of kingdom work, challenging and encouraging one another. And don't you want to be a part of that? To open your heart to the possibilities of God, to pay attention through prayer and God sightings and scripture reading in order to discover your Jesus encounters. Be prepared for the scales to fall off of your eyes and for you to see things in ways you have never seen them before. And most importantly, oh, I want you to walk out of this space expecting to have a Jesus encounter in your own life. To truly posture yourself for this possibility and then watch out. Because you never know who you might just bump into on the road, in the grocery store, at the gas station, in the office, on a hiking trail, at school. You never know. Let us pray. Lord, this morning we give ourselves to you and we long to answer your call. And we pray for the scales to fall off of our eyes so we can see you. 
Maybe it's in your word that we see you, or at the communion table like the Emmaus disciples. Maybe it's recognizing your suffering that allows us to profess my Lord and my God like Thomas. Maybe it's to step up to your request to tend to your sheep like Peter. Or maybe it's to go courageously in a direction we were not expecting to go like Paul and Ananias. But Lord, we have shaken the dust off. Make us your instrument now, today, or when you need us most. And all of God's children said, amen.